Welcome to Nasio Voices, where we talk all things state IT. I'm Amy Glasscock from my house in Lexington, Kentucky. And I'm Matt Pincus at my house here in Washington, D.C. Like many of you, we are figuring out how to do all aspects of our job remotely these days as the coronavirus spreads and requires changes in our daily lives. Before we introduce our guest, I do want to mention that NACIO just put out a planning and response guide for state CIOs concerning COVID-19. This resource is available on our website and lays out best practices for CIOs to ensure that IT services continue during this pandemic outbreak. Today on NACIO Voices, we'll be joined by new NACIO president and New Hampshire CIO, Dennis Goulet. We're really excited to chat with Dennis about a bunch of topics today, including his unexpected transition to president, his top priorities in New Hampshire, and obviously his perspective on the role of state CIOs in dealing with the coronavirus pandemic. Dennis, thanks so much for joining us on NACIO Voices. Oh, nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, sure. So let's just get in right at the beginning to what's at the top of all of our minds, the coronavirus or COVID-19. It feels like so much has happened this week and even really in just the last few days. And just for reference for our listeners, we are recording this on Friday, March 13th. So by the time this comes out on Wednesday, it could be some different things going on. But financial markets are taking a hit. We don't know the overall economic impact of things, but we know conferences, corporate events, meetings, sporting events, schools are being canceled or closed, and some companies are instituting mandatory work from home policies. So I'm really interested in your perspective, and I'd like to hear about the impact that you've seen in New Hampshire of this pandemic, and give us your thoughts on the state CIO role in the overall coronavirus response for states. Well, it certainly is top of mind for all of us, Amy. And uh, in New Hampshire, we've we've led with pu- the public health folks. They've really taken a strong leadership role in terms of aggressively tracking, you know, known contacts and and going and trying to slow down the spread of the of the virus in New Hampshire. And uh, you know, so we're still early days on that, but that's really the the, the largest part of what's going on as well as uh, spending a lot of effort in terms of, we stood up a joint information center so that we can um, effectively communicate from all of the various entities inside the state, like Department of Education, Department of uh, Health, and of course the governor's office about what things are going on. Now, in terms of the state CIO, what what we've been focused on doing is is maintaining and, and communicating through our relationships with the governor's office and the various affected entities. Also, we're we're in incident command mode now, so we've activated our our uh, incident plans. Essentially, now our uh, emergency management folks have incident command on that, uh, reporting directly to the governor. So we're very close. We have the resources that we need in terms of of that structure. Um, you know, I would encourage other CIOs if you're not active with your governor's office and with your emergency management folks, I would definitely take steps to do that. Also, thinking forward on what's top of mind from an IT infrastructure perspective, it's it's remote access. As you see, we're we're seeing the numbers of people who are being quarantined slowly go up. That'll affect state workers, and to the extent that we're able to respond and deliver high quality services um, and, and the ability to access their state resources from home, that's a big deal. Yeah, absolutely. So in your uh, disaster recovery business continuity plan, did you already have a pandemic as a possibility in there or is it something that you had to adapt? 
Well, we had generic continuity of operation plans. And so mm-hmm. what we did is we have a, a person in our um, Homeland Security Emergency Management who focus on continuity of operations. And what she did is she created a pandemic-specific template that we've rolled out to all the agencies. That's working really well for IT because we can just link to basically part of that plan is to prioritize your activities and your critical support functions and the staff associated with that. So that helps us understand who we should target first in each agency to make sure we have that remote access or whatever other things they need stood up. Another thing that we don't often talk about is not all agencies are created equal in a situation like that. So not only do we prioritize inside the agency, but we need to have an overall prioritization so that if I have resource constraints, I know that I'm responding to the most critical agency needs first and uh, deferring the others. What would be an example of the most critical agencies for you guys? Well, it started out with public health right off the Mm -hmm. bat. We had some things that they needed from us, and we just jumped on it and and jumped through every hoop we needed to get through to make sure that they were empowered to do what they needed to do. Um, Now it's working on, you know, there's outward communication. We've been uh, evolving an information portal on our website over the past few days, and we keep evolving it almost on an hourly basis. So that, you know, Mm. uh, communicating to the public on anything from linking to CDC advice the statistics inside, the true statistic inside New Hampshire, you know, where you might be able to find toilet paper, believe it or not. So things like that, that outward communication. And of course, we want to make sure that our emergency management folks who are coordinating this effort have all the resources they need as well. So they sit way high up on the list, always, regardless of what sort of hazard, even, you know, an ice storm or anything else, we want to make sure they're taken care of. Absolutely. Yeah. And Dennis, I guess just from like a Department of Information Technology perspective, what have you been talking to your staff about? You know, the folks that work for you, are they coming into the office every day? Are they working remotely? Do they need to be in the office? I mean, talk us through that a little bit. You know, one of the nice things about New Hampshire in terms of COOP is we tend to have some big snowstorms sometimes. (laughs) So it's not always easy to get into the office. So we're kind of used to being able to support a lot of our stuff remotely. You know, a high percentage of our population has laptops and are accustomed to doing their work from home. So that's good. So what we've been telling them is, first of all, we're very supportive of, for whatever reason, if they, you know, if they're not feeling well, we're saying, you know, please go home. You know, if you're, you're demonstrating any kind of symptoms, please go home, work from home. And if you become sick, then you can follow our Department of Personnel sick policy Um, So we're doing, you know, doing that. So standing up remote access capabilities for our IT wasn't a huge problem for us because we already had it. We also are accustomed to running our help desk, our service desk with remote personnel for the same reason I described before. It's usually a snow event or something like that. But so we're already accustomed to that. So the so what we're really looking at now is getting ready to, as needed, shift resources maybe from one part of the of the department to another to help with things like standing up VPN circuits for folks who are going, you know, who are going to be working from home in other agencies or um, upgrading infrastructure as we start to hit limits on things because the average number of VPN connections, for example, that are were fine, you know, two weeks ago for any given state 
are no longer fine now. So that capacity issue is, is looming and we have to manage that. We've stopped doing any large gatherings. We're going to do all our, our meetings virtual. So if, you know, regardless of whether people are home or even in the office, we'll stop, you know, exposing each other to each other right now. And then that, that will probably serve us going forward. That's great. Well, I'm sure CIOs will have a lot of lessons learned to share after all of this and after we get through to the other side, which I hope is in the near future. Same here. So we originally scheduled you to come on the podcast because you were our new president suddenly, and we thought it would be a great opportunity for our listeners in the NASIO community to get to know you a little bit better. So let's dive into some of that. You've been CIO for almost five years now and served under two different governors. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and how you ended up as one of the longer tenured state CIOs? Sure. Well, I worked most of my career in the private sector for software companies. And I absolutely love software companies. The culture is fun. Generally, it's a pretty inclusive culture, a very diverse culture, innovative culture. A lot of times during that time, you know, there was there was a lot of growth going on in the industry. And it's fun to work in a growth industry. So really enjoyed that. So it was a huge change coming to state government. But I did succeed in making that change. And I think one of the reasons that I've been able to stay doing it and actually have, uh, you know, a governor from each party have me serve them was that. I, I love what I'm doing. <laughs> I thought when I originally started, I was like, oh, you know, I'll give back and it'll be a duty. It doesn't feel like a duty, even when it's like challenging, like it is now responding to a public health emergency. Um, I'm still liking it way more than I expected. And I think that helps. Another thing I, I think helps is that, you know, James Collins, our past president, talked about the value and importance of relationships inside mm -hmm. state government. I couldn't agree more. And I've spent a very significant percentage of my time building, managing, and maintaining relationships with, you know, the governor's office, with our legis key legislative figures. We have a very large legislature in New Hampshire. Uh, we have 400 House members in a small state like New Hampshire and 22 senators. So it's a lot of people to have. And we turn over a third of that number every two years. That's a challenge there, but the, a lot of the key figures stay. And so having those relationships. And then, of course, I do recall when I was being interviewed in a panel interview by a bunch of agency heads back in 2015 before I joined, they said, "What? tell us what your uh, success factors are. And I said, one of the success factors, it will be, you know, at some point you're going to be upset with IT. It's just inevitable. And so I'll feel successful if you call me up and tell me you're upset versus complaining about me in the halls of government. And we, ha we have achieved that. So, I, you know, I, I do get those calls. I imagine some people complain about me too, but I mean, I think that it helps to have those. It more than helps. It's magic. It's so important to have yeah. those relationships. For sure. And we very much enjoy getting to work with you uh, on a pretty much daily basis at NASIO. And that's sort of where I wanted to head Let's talk about your work a little bit with NASIO. Interested to hear, Dennis, about how you decided to take on a leadership role with NASIO. Was this something you wanted to do immediately after your appointment, or did it come later? So very early on in my tenure at New Hampshire, I think I joined the state in April of 2015. And then I came to the new CIO orientation in May at mid-year in 2015. And that was so helpful for me. Um, I, I remember sitting there going, oh, my God, I have to do that? 
<laughs> now, I didn't really realize what I'd gotten myself into, but NASIO has been there all along to kind of help me out. And as I became more comfortable with my role and started to understand what people were talking about, I started to just feel like more part of the family. And I think it just, I just grew into it. When I was um, reappointed by Governor Sununu back in May, I thought, gee, you know, I've got another four years that I, at least four years, I'm going to do this job. I should really aspire to a, a bigger leadership role inside NASIO. And so I, I, you know, I spoke to Doug Robinson about that. And, you know, here we are a <laughs> little, little sooner than expected, but, but I'm, you know, I feel good about it. Just as a quick side note, you mentioned four years. You have something unique in New Hampshire, right? You, as a CIO, you have a four-year appointment. Is that right? That's correct. The governor nominates. The council then has to vote on that. And then once they've confirmed me, it's a four-year contract. So when Governor Sununu came into office, I still had two and a half years of my first four years. He could have gotten rid of me but they would have had to, to pay me for the remaining part of mm. my term. And so, so it almost never happens, and particularly not if, if you're in good standing. It's mm-hmm. really a great model, especially you know with 25 new state CIOs last year. Obviously, we're state agnostic, but in my personal opinion, is that is a, a pretty good model to have, especially with the amount of churn we've had in state CIOs over the last year. But just getting back to your work on the NASIO Executive Committee, this past October, you were sworn in as NASIO Vice President. And then bam, suddenly a few weeks ago, Eric Boyette, the NASIO President, North Carolina CIO, and also an avid NASIO Voices listener, I should add, gets unexpectedly tasked by his governor to become Transportation Secretary. Take us through that and talk to me about your subsequent transition from Vice President to NASIO President. Well, first of all, I want to congratulate Eric Boyette. When we talk about IT leaders as business leaders, nowhere is it more evident that success uh, was achieved than when you're tapped to run a business as an IT sure. leader. Yeah, for um, sure. So, so that's just amazing. It's just amazing. And I'm so proud of what Eric has accomplished. Um, when Doug called me about him leaving, I just was immediately mentally on board. I'm like, okay, I don't really know what I'm doing, but I'm going to get on board and I'm going to make it happen. And so that's really been my attitude since then is, okay, let's figure out how we're going to, you know, working with the very strong NASIO staff and uh, to fill the, the void in the vice president slot and then the subsequent void in the director slot. So I, re- I really want to get on that and, and try to have as little uh, disruption in leadership and in pursuing the work plan as possible. So that's really how I've approached it. And and that's my mental uh, state, 100%. That's great. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking with my next question. You know, since it is sort of an unusual situation, what was your main focus as you fulfill the remainder of that term for the next six to seven months? Well, I don't want to disrupt the existing work plan or Eric's priorities, particularly his workforce priorities, he, you know, that's important stuff that he had going. You know, I didn't see any reason to disrupt that. And so I want to make sure that the, you know, the work plan and the NASIO priorities that were set by Eric, um, you know, I fulfill them to the best of my ability as we go forward in this, what I consider a caretaker role that I'm in now. Gotcha. Great. So talk a little bit about your top initiatives in New Hampshire as the CIO in New Hampshire. Well, the there's a number of things that 
I've been really passionate about. One of the things I just love doing is organizational development, taking an organization from where it's functioning at any given time and moving it along a continuous improvement continuum so that we just keep getting better and better. So that's been really top of mind since the moment I walked in the door. So evolving the management and leadership culture and the work culture in, in our team has been really important. And my elevator pitch for that is called Elevating DOIT. And how do we elevate DOIT in New Hampshire? Well, it's, it's around how we perform, how we do our job, how we communicate with people, how we think about innovation, how we evolve management culture from your traditional top-down state leadership culture to more matrixed and empowered leadership cultures that involve things like lean and agile mindsets. So that's big. Um, Digital government's big. You know, there's technology involved in digital government, but what I'll consider the biggest success is when agency leaders start thinking about how they project their digital assets from the viewpoint of our citizens and businesses versus from their own viewpoints. And that's a big ship to turn because our traditional way of thinking has always been, you know, if you looked at a lot of our websites now, for example, they look like an org chart of the of the organization versus what a citizen or business might want to see. And we've got enterprise alignment inside the state's a big deal, probably in the top three as well. And what that involves is, although the state has been centralized for more than a decade, when I say centralized, I don't mean just core infrastructure and shared services, but all the embedded application folks inside the agencies also report into my organization. Where I found an opportunity in 2015 when I joined was that we still had a number of apps, even inside a single organization, where you know we weren't necessarily leveraging economies of scale at the application level. It wouldn't be smart to not mention cybersecurity, right? That's mm-hmm. that's top of mind. We are we spend a lot of effort and time on cyber made a real lot of traction there in terms of my, there is no I in cyber team approach to protecting citizen data and the services that we supply. And you guys have a fantastic chief information security officer, Dan Dister in New Hampshire, who I know is a great partner of yours in cybersecurity. Cybersecurity, as you mentioned, it's a top priority for every state CIO, which definitely shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone. But you've also been involved in some legislative efforts at the federal level, probably more than most, if not all of state CIOs. Can you talk about some of those initiatives and your working relationship with staffers and lawmakers in Congress, including your former boss? (laughs) Well, that's where it starts, right? And we talked about relationships earlier. So having those strong relationships, but Senator Hassan is really a national leader in the cyberspace. I remember when the the first time I met with her when I joined the state of New Hampshire, she was like, you need a statewide IT strategy, but you need a cyber strategy first. You know, so we very quickly put together a cyber strategy. We very quickly started building, you know, a, a team approach to cyber that's been very effective. The legislation that's in flight now, both on the Senate side and the House side, or, you know, if passed, will be extremely helpful. I'm particularly interested in the House legislation that would provide some uh, grant-making capabilities that don't flow through the traditional uh, way uh, through the uh, Department of Safety. I, I mean, we have benefited from those DHS grants, 
that go through safety, but having the stuff that's targeted and focused on cyber and administered by cyber professionals, I think is important, particularly now with the challenges we're having with our municipal cyber, you know, our towns and cities and county governments who are, you know, who are really the soft targets for the, the bad guys with ransomware. So I'm really excited and hope that to see that passed. On the Senate side with, you know, these uh, cyber coordinator for each state versus the folks that are spread very thin now on a regional basis, that's pretty exciting too, um, to help us. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding and, and particularly now when we have a lot of folks who just joined their roles is, well, what are these federal entities there for? What will they do for me and not do for me? And of course, we've seen, I think I have some stats here. In September 16, uh, the Multi-State Information Sharing and Analysis Center, MSISAC, had 1,000 members. As of 2-3-2020, they had 9,000 members. Wow. You know, that MSISAC is an important resource for state, local, and tribal governments. And we really want to make sure that the functions that they provide are not only maintained, but enhanced. Yeah. And from a congressional perspective, and I'd just like to get your thoughts on this, I think with the high profile ransomware attacks, you know, when you're seeing these headlines on the New York Times, you know, on nightly news, Congress has certainly increased their interest in providing resources and introducing legislation over the last six to nine months. Have you seen that change? Is that noticeable to you? You know, hearing that it's being spoken about is always the first step. And having that awareness, I think the awareness at the federal uh, level is, is very high. And that bodes well for making improvements, for sure. Um, although in New Hampshire, we just received a setback just today, actually. I had a cyber statewide cyber summit scheduled for early April, which we just decided to postpone today for obvious reasons. Right. But, you know, a little setback there. I'm really encouraged by the fact that I believe that our folks in D.C., are having a growing understanding of the value of uh, cyber investments in states beyond just the uh, traditional Department of Safety DHS grants. Right. And we would love to see some traction on on those bills that you mentioned. You know, the last thing, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the .gov. I recall we did a press conference right before the first in the nation primary in in New Hampshire. I was watching the uh, Assistant Secretary of State for elections talk about how citizens find out about what's true and what isn't. And he said, look, to come to nh.gov, it's the definitive source for your election information in New Hampshire. And, I, and making the .gov domains more accessible, not just to state government, but to the state local governments as well, is I think is important to both in terms of cybersecurity and combating disinformation. Sure. Like cybersecurity in terms of increasing awareness, the the .gov piece, you know, expanding that the .gov domain to local governments is certainly a challenge in in just education, right? Giving them reasons why that this is, you know, authoritative and secure. Indeed. And the the small fee that's associated with registration, which doesn't look significant to me, does look significant to a number of our political subdivisions, but also even caring about cyber, to be honest. Right. In, in these, so it starts with caring. It starts with understanding how to combat disinformation. I'm seeing more requests to me because uh, I'm the person that the requests come to to use the nh.gov, and I'm getting more uh, requests from local governments now. It's starting to 
to perk up a little. So I don't know if that's a, a trend or just a, a short-term aberration. All right. That's great. So this is always a bit of a hard transition. Amy's a lot better at it than I am, but we're going to do it anyway, because it's time for the lightning round, uh, which is when we get to ask you some deep probing, hard hitting questions. Uh, are you ready, Dennis? Uh, I'm ready, Matt. All right. So uh, as you may know, Amy and I have a deep love and appreciation for music and especially live music. So first question to you is, who is your favorite band and why? Well, it, that's a really hard question to answer because I love music. But when you force me to think about it, I have to say Elton John. And the reason is that, you know, not only have I loved him since maybe I was a, a youngster just beginning to like music and because of his really his great lyrics, really a lot of things that would just, you know, touch your heart or hit somewhere important in your psyche as you're listening to it. But also I've seen him live. In fact, twice I was able to be in the front row wow. for live, con live concerts. One was a full band. The other was him by himself behind the piano. Unbelievably tight, unbelievably, you know, emotionally stimulating and, and, and there's Elton John. The, the last time I saw him, he wasn't a young man. I think he played for over three hours straight without a break. Yeah, the, the guy is a performer. Second question. If you weren't state CIO, what is or what would be your dream job? Well, you know, when thinking about that, I don't think I can make a living at this. But <laughs> taking children out on the ocean and mm. explore, exploring, you know, showing them what you know, what's the ocean like, particularly offshore, you know, you get 25, 30 miles offshore yeah. and you see whales and you see marine life and you see all the different things that are happening and you see the wonder in their eyes. But also um, a lot of kids don't get to explore that and understand that really important resource that our ocean is. That's something that would be a dream for me would be to four or five days a week, if the weather's nice, be able to take children out and, ex and expose them, particularly kids that weren't probably going to be able to be exposed to that to do that that would be great maybe a a, a job or a hobby during uh, retirement indeed that would be very I've, cool i've <laughs> thought about it all right and last question in the lightning round what is the best piece of advice you've ever been given either personally or professionally i had a boss early on in my career and i was kind of a wise guy when i was younger i've mellowed <laughs> a lot since then so i remember being in this mental state where I was like, you know, I'd, I'd really like to try this innovative thing, but I don't know what'll happen when I do it. You know, that fear, uncertainty, and doubt that you have with respect to innovation and trying something new in hopes that you can make things better. And my boss looked at me and he said, Dennis, just create the problem, <laughs> which, which to me has always meant go do it and then deal with the, with the challenges as they come up. So mm -hmm. I've, I've remembered that for my entire career. And um, he also told me some advice one time when I was challenging him on something else. And he said, Dennis, go ahead and do whatever you think your career can withstand. Oh. Mm. And that's not horrible <laughs> advice either. No, it's not. Very practical. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Very practical. Uh, well, Dennis, can't thank you enough for joining us, especially, you know, we know how busy you are. And, um, you know, wish you the best. And thank you again. Well, thanks. It was great talking to you both, and uh, we'll see you soon. Thanks, Dennis. Hang in there. All right. Thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to NASIO Voices. We'll put a link to our COVID-19 preparation document for CIOs in the show notes. We'll talk to you again in two weeks, and until then, stay safe.
Bye-bye.